you ever wanted to get inside the minds of today's top entrepreneurs and creative thinkers? The Upside with Brad Keywell gives you intimate access to conversations with the world's smartest, most creative people. Former U.S. Secretary of Education Arne Duncan has his eyes set on an enormous goal, reducing homicides in Chicago by 80%. A native Chicagoan who served eight years as CEO of Chicago Public Schools, Arne is intimately familiar with the complicated dynamics of education, technology, opportunity, and violence in the city. Arne is managing partner of Chicago Cred, which operates under Laureen Powell Jobs' Emerson Collective. There, he leads a movement that gives underserved young people what he calls a fair first chance at contributing to the legal economy. Recorded in front of a live audience of students, he and Brad chat about his legacy, how Uptake is using data he pushed for to inform its student union app, and the challenges we face in ensuring safer, more educated communities. It's the first in our series of interviews with political disruptors. This is The Upside. Thank you, everybody, for being here, especially the students. Good morning. And thank you, Arnie, for joining us. Um, Thrilled to be here. So this morning, we're very privileged and honored to have you here, Arnie, and there's a lot that I would love to ask you. My bias is on pattern recognition and trying to both look backwards and understand patterns and then perhaps apply them looking forwards. You come to this moment in the world with such an interesting perspective because you started in Hyde Park as a kid and then have run some incredibly interesting and I'm sure promising and I'm sure frustrating organizations, including a school board, including uh, one of our country's core departments, and now you've come back to a different arena that you're creating. What pattern do you see that has been most frustrating? And then how have you reacted to it in your current role? That's a good first question, man, make me think. <laughs> I think I'll go back to my childhood and growing up as a part of my mother's after school program. And we grew up in middle class Hyde Park and dad taught the university there and, and uh, it was literally less than two miles from our house, but it's sort of across the 47th Street border, 46th and Greenwood. My mother started an after school program in 1961 and I was born in 64 and my sister in 67, my brother in 70, and we were raised as a part of her program. The kids there happened to be all black, happened to be all poor, happened to not have the most functional families. I don't know if they had any parents who had been to college. Um, but what I've seen all my life are amazing kids who despite on the surface you know, very real challenges, smart, talented, committed, resilient, hard workers, and didn't quite have the opportunities they needed. That's the pattern recognition for me. I always say talent is much more evenly spread than opportunity in our country. And what I've tried to do all my life is sort of bring opportunity to the talent that is there. My thought about what it must be like to run a school system is that you see opportunity, but you can't just do it. You can't just make it happen tomorrow. And then I would imagine that the Department of Education must be even more so. What was it like to try to be forcing change, which you've done in many ways in the country, and, and, and not having the satisfaction of seeing it tomorrow? I think, well, education's been our life's work. Education is the ultimate long-term play. It's not tomorrow instant gratification. It's planning for you know, elementary school, and then middle school, and then high school, and then college. 
So I've never been one looking for gratification, you know, immediately, instantaneously. And honestly, yeah, yeah sure, there are frustrations, sure, there are regrets or things, but I, both with CPS and then nationally, we were able to move a huge amount of work. It's never enough and it's never fast enough and you always want to do more. But, uh, you know, more access to early childhood education, much higher high school graduation rates, starting to think through, which the CPS has stated with, how you keep freshmen on track to be successful and how predictive that is, talk about pattern recognition. Sort of an obvious point now, but 15 years ago, we didn't realize that if you were really struggling freshman year, you basically weren't gonna graduate and really intervening early there. So despite the very real obstacles, you're able to move institutions, I think much more than people realize, hmm. and that is unbelievably gratifying. We do it all again tomorrow. Pluses and minuses to public sector, private sector. So I did 17 years of public sector working for the government, working on the outside now. And there's definitely some liberation there. In some ways, you can go faster. But you also, when you're working on the outside, you never quite have the scale that you have internally. So there are pluses and minuses from working any vantage point. I always say you need great people inside government, you need great people in nonprofits, in schools. And at different points of your life, I think people should do all of those things. And the skills you take to each or build upon, I think, are hugely important. I want to talk about College Scorecard and how you came to have the opinion that data mattered in a way that I think was ahead of the time. So in 2010, who do you think was an extraordinary leader who found data and insight to be a leading tool to use in operations? Well, I'll go back to two huge lessons that were very, very tough lessons here in Chicago, but where data changed how we worked. When we were leading Chicago public schools, our test scores are going up each year. We were feeling good about that progress. And then the, uh, the consortium in Chicago School Research, so it's an outside independent group, independent of us, they looked at if you were doing well on the Illinois state test, which had been dummied down, which happened in many states, what that equated to on the ACT. So if you were quote unquote meeting standards, if you were proficient, they did the, the analysis and that equated to a 16 on the ACT. If you get a 16 on the ACT, you basically have like a 10% chance of graduating from, from college. But Illinois said that- Illinois said- You and, were- And we believed. We thought we were doing a great job. And it was an unbelievable punch in the gut and basically we stopped paying attention to students who were proficient and only looked at a percent of students who were advanced on a state test, which equated to a 20 on the ACT. And we had a long way to go there. But basically, Brad, we had been, as a system, lying to kids and lying to families for a long time. That's one, for me, the most insidious things in education is to tell kids they're on track to be successful and they're not. So that data analysis transformed how we thought about progress and what we needed to do to have kids be successful. The second one, again, came out of a consortium, again, independent research, that just sort of broke down. If you looked at kids' grades freshman year, they're you know, passing all their classes, they're in great shape. If they have you know, one F or one D, I, I forget the exact numbers, it goes down to like an 80% chance of graduating from high school, two Fs or two Ds, 60%, three Fs, 40%. So basically that freshman year determined kids' fate. And if you're trying to reduce the dropout rate, which we're always trying to do, if you wait to junior, senior year, it's too late. Those kids are gone. So we put a huge amount of resources into transition the summer between eighth grade and ninth grade into very early uh, you know, data analysis, real time, not sec first, end of first semester, but first week, second week, third week, kids' photos on a board, teachers walking through each student. If they miss a day, what are we doing to intervene? So those are two very concrete examples where data analysis that we weren't sophisticated enough to do ourselves, but we're lucky enough to have an outside partner challenge us, 
fundamentally changed how we did business and changed kids' lives. The schoolroom scene, the setting, the way that uh, the drama of a, of a classroom plays out was a system created in the 1800s in rural America, so one to many, right? I'm gonna lecture you, you're gonna listen, you're gonna regurgitate, and I'm gonna see if you listened. And in the last 10 years, maybe, the flipping the classroom concept of, I am going to explain what needs to be learned, you are gonna take your time, either at home or in the classroom, to do the best you can to learn it, and I can then address each of you in a more precise way, which only works with technology. Is there hope that our entire system might evolve to become one that somehow with technology at scale can individually acclimate an educational program to every person about how they learn. There's absolutely hope, and I'm always hopeful and optimistic, I'll get to that, but I also just want to sort of give the caveats. Technology has a chance to transform so many things, including education, but only to your point, only if it's ubiquitous, only if everyone has access. And if technology only goes to the wealthy, and not to inner city Chicago, not to Detroit, not to Native American reservations, not to McDowell County, West Virginia, then technology actually exacerbates the divide between the haves and the have-nots. And so for me, there's nothing magical about technology unless it is for all. Now, if we do that, then it's transformative. If not, and this happens too often, the kids who have the most benefit the most, and that gap actually grows. So government's at its best when it can use its power of regulation and dictation or action to change something. And so flipping the classroom or enabling a new way of education, I don't think can be pulled, right? Someone's gotta push it and say, this is the way things work. Education, for better or worse, and the pros and cons to it, education K to 12, we'll talk about higher ed, has always been a local issue in the United States, historically, and that's never really gonna change. The only way, Brad, I think this changes, I think education moves way too slow. As you've seen, we've got a model that was built for a century ago. I know you guys like summers off. Uh, our school year is built for the agrarian economy. I don't think you guys are working in the fields anymore. I think we should be going to school longer hours. But Brad, the only way this changes is from the outside in. This changes from business leaders demanding more of schools, which we don't hear nearly enough of, and it comes from students and parents themselves demanding more. But left to its own devices, there is not enough push there's not enough willpower, there's not enough courage, there's too much pushback from the left and the right, and we can talk about the politics of this, for this to be healed from the inside at this pace, at the speed this needs to happen. Yeah. So my hope is for disruption from the outside, from business leaders demanding more, from students and parents saying, this is not good enough for me. That's the only way it's gonna happen. So back to what you were saying about technology. So the flip or the intervention of technology has to be equal, it has to be widely distributed. I think again, to your point, the idea that you get a credit for algebra for sitting in a seat for nine months makes no sense. You should get a credit for algebra when you know algebra. And that could be before you even take that class, you may have already learned it, you should get that credit. It might take you a year and a half to learn it. But learning anything you want, anytime, anywhere, any place, at your own speed, that's the power of technology. What grade do you guys, you guys are? Seniors. Seniors? Yep, so going through and the college process now. You guys have to have computers in the classroom. Talk about College Scorecard. What was the idea when you, when you announced it? So the whole college system in America, it's just, it, it's, it's fascinating. So just a couple of facts, and we can debate what we do with the facts. I think we still have the best system of higher education in the world. So I think that's a fair statement, although others are catching up very rapidly. One, that is true. Secondly, folks don't realize less than half of Americans have a college degree, less than half. Third, 
there are several thousand colleges. So you talk about marketplaces and efficiency and being able to figure out where you're going to go to dinner. That should be an easy process. It's almost impenetrable, though. The market is fundamentally broken. And what stunned me, you learned so much. I went to D.C. You guys are filling out the financial aid form, the FAFSA form. When people fill out the financial aid form, like 70% of people who fill out that form apply to one school. So we have thousands of colleges, and we think we have all these choices, and we can better match or whatever. But for a whole host of reasons we can talk about, they apply to one place, whether that's the right fit or not. Third, students who look like me, who come from my background, for me, the goal for all of you guys is not to go to college, it's to graduate. It took her five years, it took me five years, it might take you six, it might take you three. But so many colleges don't care much about whether you graduate or not. They just want you to enroll. And the goal is not to go to college, the goal is to walk across that stage. So where's the school that's going to help me do that? Who's going to help me figure out that data? I always ask, quick question for students, in terms of financial aid, grants and loans, how much do you think the federal government gives out each year to students? Give me a guess. It's in billions. Right? So that's that's the starting point. Okay, how, how, how many, many billion? How many billions? Any guesses? Ten. So it's 175 billion each year. 175 billion each year in grants and loans. That's, and that's all of our money. That's our tax dollars. But Brad, what kills me is all of that money goes to inputs. It goes to enrollment. None of that goes to colleges based upon outcomes, based upon graduation rates. And we tried to push to change that in that we, we fail. It's really amazing so, how the disconnect between precision and output orientation of business and then education. It's you would, yet, you go yet the most you would go important. Crazy. What? <laughs> you would go crazy. Well, yeah. the most important input yeah. to business is education. Right, right. That's what's so ironic about it. But I go back to if you guys, if the business leaders, CEOs demanded it, it would change. But short of that demand, it's not going to change fast enough. And so it's a long to answer. The idea behind the scorecard was just to try to start to get some basic, this wasn't super sophisticated stuff, basic information, basic data to students and to parents to help them, this, them navigate, you know, other than who you marry, where you go to college is a pretty important decision. And with so many different choices and so much confusion, trying to just get real-time information to students and parents to make that hugely important decision and that process just a little bit easier. And to have some public transparency. Yeah. That's the other thing, trying to have some accountability. So much if you look at the US News and World Report, there's some strengths there, but basically a, how you score high there is based upon how many students you exclude. You score well based upon how many students you don't serve. You sort of think about that, that's crazy. I want to reward universities based upon who they include and how well they serve them. And so the sort of ways of judging folks now that are out there, I think, has some very, very, very perverse incentives. They actually hurt students like students we have here with us today. So what I find interesting is that seven years ago, you announced and mandate data sharing and, in essence, mandate schools, both high schools and colleges, sharing information that becomes public. I think what we're doing here with Uptake.org is one of the first widely disseminated manifestations, tools, products built on top of the data that you created, which is a great thing. It's not, a, a, it's not like seven years is too long. What it shows is that when you plant the seeds, and the seeds are transparency and sharing of the facts, that at some point innovation takes hold. And my observation is that momentum creates momentum. Yeah. So I just want to applaud the, the foresight or the insight and and feedback to you that it matters. Yeah. It's well, that, I'm thrilled, and that's, like, that's why I'm here, because honestly, that was our <clears throat> whole hope, 
was that we could create a platform in which the private sector could innovate. And it was never going to come from government, it was never going to come from, in, from the inside, but if we could get good data on the outside, and then folks like you that are so thoughtful and so committed would find a way to drive it. Let me just talk again quickly, not to throw too many numbers at you, but both the, the hope and the, the need to get better faster. So good news, bad news story. The good news over the past 20 years, we've doubled the number of African and American and Latino students graduating from college. That's the good news. The bad news is that Latino rate doubled from 8 to 15 percent, and African American from 13 to like 24, 25. The percent of young, you know, 21 to 28-year-old African American Latinos with college degrees in the country. So the question for me, are we going to sit here 20 years from now and say we're heroes, we've doubled again, and still less than a third of Latinos in our country have access, have a college degree, and less than half of African Americans have access to a college degree? For me, that pace of change is just way too slow. Part of how we expedite is we prepare a lot more young people to be successful, and we better match them with universities where they're not just going, but where they're graduating. And so this, for me, is part of the process of can we not be have double that rate in the next 20 years? Can we have four times that rate, five times that rate? And honestly, that still won't be fast enough, but it'd be a heck of a lot better than the previous 20 years. So you're always trying to make more progress faster. One of the things that inspires me about one goal is the focus on not just going to college, but graduating college, persistence and the sense of don't just go to college, but get through college, and don't just get through college, do it well. In that sort of essence, I was fascinated by the fact that if a kid goes to a college that's too easy, the dropout rate is just as likely as if it's too hard. And that's one of the problems that this product, Student Union, solves is go to the right college that's appropriately challenging, because if you guys, if something's totally easy, you're bored and you check out. It's, a, it's just an interesting observation. It's like college, and there's so many things to think about. And, and again, because there are so many choices, just really trying to empower your choices. Big school, small school, good for your major, good for students that look like you, and there's no right or wrong answer. And, and for 30 students, there'll be 30 different answers. But there's a right answer for you, and that's what we've been missing. Um, you know, Chicago is home to lots of universities. That's fantastic. Some do an amazing job of graduating students that look just like you, and some don't. We started early when I was at CPS doing our own sort of data analysis and Brad, we honestly started quietly steering kids towards certain universities and honestly away from others because kids with identical GPAs, identical SAT, ACT scores, some were graduating from college at like 80% and some were like at 20%. So same inputs, radically different outcomes. That's not about the student, that's about the college and whether or not they're serving them well or even committed, even frankly care about where they, you know, march across that stage, you know, four or five years later. There's so much to talk about um, with limited time, one of which we've had conversations about the business community influencing education, taking valuable messages and getting them to you guys in ways that you like to see. I mean, the amount of time and energy that goes towards marketing a Nike shoe to you is outrageous. People trying to influence you to love Nike. The amount of talent in that same time about explaining to you college choices on a relative basis is none. So there's a lot of ways to harness just people's you know, genius to apply to, to social good. I, I think it's so hard. Again, the college process is just so hard, and that's if you have two parents who went to college. If you're first-generation college goers, which you guys are focused on, if you're new to the country, if English is your second language, 
that degree of difficulty just goes up exponentially. And again, that's not fair. Yeah. That's not fair. So talk about what you're doing now, because now you've come full circle and you're trying to figure out a, a way to make an economic model of hope that pulls people out of bad situations. Or go back to your pattern recognition and just sort of looking at data and facts. And this is a, you know, I love Chicago. Chicago raised me. So many people helped me. It's why I came back home and wanted to sort of help and give back and raise my kids here with my wife. But Chicago is a very tough place now. And downtown is gorgeous and places like this are gorgeous. But neighborhoods on the south side and the west side, we have robbed kids of their childhoods. It's not safe. And it's not fair. It's not the kid's fault, and it breaks my heart. And the level of fear, here we are talking about college, and we got a lot of kids just literally trying to survive day to day. And it's hard to think long term. It's hard to think about applying to college. It's hard to think about algebra trig if you're not sure if you're going to live. And we have a lot of kids living like that. One high school had 17 kids shot last school year. One, these are kids in school. 17 kids in one school shot. And I think about... Iraq and Afghanistan and war zones and do they have 17 kids in a high school shot? I don't know if they do. And so I'm just laser focused. It's a bit of a departure, but it's related on just trying to reduce gun violence here in the city and I'm, you know, stay at it the next, took us a long time to get where we are and, you know, I'm going to do it at least the next five years and see if we can get to a radically different place. But and the idea is? The, the idea is that the young men who are most at risk of shooting and being shot need an opportunity to make a living in the legal economy. They need life coaches. They need to help dealing with the trauma that they have lived with all their life. Um, they need a sense of hope. Um, they need to know people care about them. And so we are providing jobs and a whole host of wraparound services, substance abuse, housing. We've had a bunch of guys go back and get their high school diplomas and just trying to help them transition from the illegal economy, which inevitably leads to a huge percent of the gun violence, to the legal economy. Tell us one story. Like what, what's what's oh, man, a, a precise example of either success or failure? I think both, both would be yeah. valuable to hear about. We have a, a million unbelievable anecdotes, but we have a young man that just started working downtown. He's going to make $45,000 a year, who was a huge part of the problem in his community a year ago. Dealing drugs or? Uh, much worse than that. Shoot, shooting people and being shot at and was shot. Again, this is very humbling work, and you really learn not to judge. How did, how did that person get out? What he, was step one? He always, these are good kids who never had a chance, and people often say, oh, it's so nice you're giving people a second chance. I think we're actually giving them a first chance. I think they often didn't have a first chance. The vast majority of our guys didn't, didn't basically have a mom, didn't have a dad, were raising themselves, and all of us in rooms like this were absent from their lives, and basically the streets raise them. And when the streets raise you, you go a certain way. But we have six cohorts of guys. We try and build a brotherhood. We build camaraderie. We have guys who are shooting at each other, who are now supporting each other. And for every cohort we've done, we've gone from one to six, so we're trying to scale fast. We've had a waiting list. People say, you know, how do you find these guys? Guys are looking to get out of the streets. It is so violent. It's not safe. They're not getting rich. They just have to have a chance. So we're just giving them a rational choice. And the vast majority of guys out there want to take that rational choice. Transformation takes time. It's not an overnight success. We have good days. We have horrible days. Um, one of our life coaches, his, his own son was shot in the neck two days ago. That's what we dealt with yesterday. Um, that's, that's the reality in our neighborhoods. It's so interesting. The experience of growing a business without uptake has gone from one person to around 900 in um, three and a half years. And we've done it without 
our highs and lows are, are, we think are extreme. It's really interesting to just put in perspective and suppose the power of, of the extreme highs and lows is also the power of the purpose that with those lives that are, you're deeply engaging with, with the families and the people, you then are like witnessing transformation deep. Was there a moment in that person's journey with you where it clicked? either for him or you? I don't think, there's never one moment. I think, again, this is, this is hard work and you have amazing days and amazing weeks and then you have heartbreaking day or heartbreaking week. But yeah, I'll just say that I think lots of young men have made rational choices all their life because they have not had other rational choices to make. So many of our guys became the men of their homes when they were 12 or 13, um, had no money, had to, many were older brothers and had to take care of younger siblings. And there was one guy hiring, and that was the guy in the corner. And hmm. again, folks like us were not present. Right. And our youngest guy, who I've told me, he said he started selling drugs at nine years old. And he said, Arnie, that was, it was hard to sell drugs at nine years old. I'm like, I, I bet that was hard. And you never had to make those choices. I never made, had to make those choices. But I had two younger siblings. I can't say, that, am I a better person? I don't think I'm a better person. If I had to provide for my sister and brother at that age, um, you're going you're gonna to do some things. Mm. Okay, I want to ask a bunch of quick questions, a little lightning round here. Is there a particular author, philosopher, somebody that you think's guided you um, on your journey? William Julius Wilson is a sociologist who I studied, uh, who was at U University of Chicago, who's now at Harvard. He's interesting. Byron Stevenson, I pay a lot of attention to now, so those would be two that I would mention quickly. Give us one anecdote about playing basketball with President Obama. <laughs> Tried to whoop him every chance I got. <laughs> That's it? One more anecdote. <laughs> Who's got a better shot? There you go. Can't, can't <laughs> no, it, it, just quickly, it was, it was a lot of fun. And it was almost, you know, obviously being a president is amazing, but it's really, really hard. And I often thought that was almost the only place where he could just be a totally regular person. People always say, do you take it easy on him? No, we never took it easy on anybody. And it was on his team, we're trying to win, and trying to, on the other team, we're trying to kill him. And just to have a chance to have some camaraderie and just be a regular person, it was a big stress reliever. And again, just the camaraderie of having a group of guys and playing was a, was a, it was a great time. What's at the top of your bucket list? I want to reduce the homicide rate in Chicago by 80%. That's what I want to do. I'm obsessed with that. And, and to be clear, that would just put us in line with New York and LA. That's how wildly disproportionate, just take one second on the numbers. We had 760 homicides last year. Just to be normal, which is still too high, to be normal in New York and LA, we would have to go from 760 to 150. We'd have to have, to have, we would have to have a 600 reduction in body count. So we could, put it another way, we could cut our homicide rate in half, which I would love to do by 50% to 384, and we would still be twice what New York and LIA are. That's how far we have to go. That's how far from the norm we are. I'm always interested in the way that productive, impactful people manage their time. How do you manage your, your, your day and what's the most productive time of your day? I, um, I think that's for all of us, that's our most precious resource, our scarcest resource is time. I try and spend, we have six cohorts of guys, three south side, three west side. I spend a lot of my time meeting with those different cohorts, so I spent all day yesterday was out on, on the west side. Um, I spend some time talking to business leaders about jobs and, and doing that work. 
but the, the time that I think is most productive, most valuable is with my team and building on our team. We're planning now for 2018 and how we start to scale and serve a lot more folks. The time with my team would be a, a close second, but for me, the best use of my time now is actually spending time with our guys. Um, I go to Cook County Jail pretty frequently and we recruit straight out of there and I hate doing that. It's not fun, but it's hugely valuable because we need those relationships and we need those guys coming to us once they get out. Two more questions. What one skill is at the top of your list that you want to learn? I don't think it's a new skill. I think one thing I'm pretty good at that has been invaluable is I try and spend most of my time listening. And all the good ideas, whether it's any, very few of the good ideas I've tried to implement actually came from me. Most of the good ideas have come from people a lot smarter than me and just really spending time listening to them and to your, again, go back to your pattern recognition. If I keep hearing stuff, it, then I start to think there's something there. If you could pass down a quote or something from someone, not from you, that would then be a gift from you to generations three, four, five uh, yeah. down I, the tree. I, what? I have one quote. I just think you guys are amazing. I just think we have amazing. You know, I've traveled all, I've probably visited more schools across the country. I'm sure I did than anyone else in the country for, for seven years. And, Again, inner city, rural, remote, Native American reservations. We just have, that's why, again, why I'm so hopeful, Brad. We just have amazing, amazing kids who are often overcoming unbelievable things at home, in the community, to get to school every day and work hard. And just, uh, just you guys got to know how much you inspire me and how hopeful you make me and how much you motivate me. And um, as tough as a spot as I think we are right now, um, I'm convinced we're going to get to a better place. I keep, I keep saying our young guys working right now, they're going to they're gonna lead Chicago to a better place. It's not going to be me. They're going to lead Chicago to a better place. I think you guys are going to do the same thing. I want to, of course, thank you, Secretary Duncan. And I also want to acknowledge from myself personally to you that there are, in the whole world, there are only so many genuine, inspirational leaders. And your actions, of course, your, your eloquent words, but your actions make you genuine, inspirational and a leader. So thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate the partnership. This has been big time. Thank you so much. What goes through people's minds when making life-changing decisions? How does one know when to pursue an idea? Check out The Upside with Brad Keywell on iTunes and SoundCloud.